0: From PRX.
1: This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
0: Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson.
1: Back in 1986, Will Vinton Studios, an animation company in Portland, Oregon, produced a particularly memorable TV ad. Ooh, I heard
2: it the Not much longer will you be mine. Honey, honey,
1: yeah. Those, of course, are the California Raisin, the sunglass-wearing claymation characters doing an oddly literal version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. It became a huge ad campaign back in that three-TV channel day and an actual cultural phenomenon with record albums and Saturday morning cartoon shows. That same year, Will Vinton Studios unleashed another claymation advertising character, this one for Domino's Pizza. This creature also got famous, but even more through serendipity and misfortune, infamous. Our producer Sam Kim has the story, which begins with the creative director of a now-defunct advertising agency in Michigan that created the character.
2: It was over-the-top, you know. It was big. It was expressive. It was colorful. It was loud, you know. It, it, underneath that suit, he probably had big hair. My name is Ernie Perrich, and I was the uh, executive vice president and creative director on the Domino's Pizza Noid campaign. You know, it's 1980, 84. Crazy stuff's going on. I mean, it was kind of a grand time for advertising. Brooke Shields is doing the Calvin Klein ads.
0: You want to know what comes between me and my Calvin's? Nothing.
2: Energizer Bunny. They keep going. And where's the
0: beef? At when did you get more beef and less bun?
2: And Domino's Pizza is essentially in a two-horse race then, right? It's Pizza Hut was the the in-store dining place.
3: Let yourself go. Pizza Hut let yourself go to
2: Pizza Hut. Domino's Pizza was the delivery place.
3: Domino's
1: Pizza Domino's Pizza delivers I'm
2: fresh. What we constantly had to overcome was the perception that a pizza that was going to be delivered, it's going to taste like cardboard, the cheese is going to be stuck to the top of the box, it's going to be ice cold, it's going to smell like cigarette smoke because the driver's smoking in the car. So what we really wanted to do was highlight that that product would uh, be delivered hot and fresh uh, you know, in less than a half an hour. So we had a little off-site meeting. A guy by the name of Tom Masters came up with the idea, you know, maybe we could come up with a bad guy. It's like, wow, well, a bad guy. Part of the discussion was, you know, what are we going to name this thing? And the guys and gals at Domino's called themselves Dominoids, and it was just kind of a little internal thing. Matt Thornton was a writer, and Matt said, why don't we just call him Annoyed? It was just short for Dominoid. It's one-syllable. I love one-syllable names. That's cool. Let's go with that. It basically became just a personification of all the things that could go wrong. He was a little bit like Wiley e. Coyote. At that point in time, I had seen some early clay animation work by Woolvitton Productions in Portland, Oregon. They had did some Nike commercials, and visually, I just loved the way that clay stuff looked. So, we kind of just gave them our sketches, gave them our thoughts, and they had a guy on staff there uh, by the name of Barry Bruce. He took our little guy and put him in a skin tight rubber suit with those big ears. And he talks about how these ears can do anything. You can tie them in knots, you can grab them, they can droop. I was going, wow, all of a sudden, this is not a guy. This is annoyed. And it was like, oh my God, that's that's nuts. It's nuts in a beautiful way. I think it launched on September 22nd, 1986.
3: This is the
1: Noid. He loves to ruin your pizza.
2: He's always trying to ruin this pizza. But guess what? The Domino's pizza gets the better of him. Then the pizza's delivered beautifully.
1: At a Domino's pizza, we avoid the Noid.
2: I mean, you know, it really struck a nerve with a certain segment of the market now. You know, maybe the 52-year-old homeowner didn't like it, but I tell you, their 13- their or 14-year-old son or daughter uh, certainly got a kick out
3: of it. It wasn't just a popular TV commercial. This thing was more successful than we had imagined. My name is Tim McIntyre. I'm Executive Vice President of Communication, Investor Relations, and Legislative Affairs at Domino's Pizza. 33 years ago, I was... Uh, I was a junior woodchuck. I was uh, an editor in our communication department. We were getting letters. We were getting phone calls. Customers were going into our stores asking if there was NOID stuff available. And it really just became a groundswell. And the people who run our uh, equipment and supply division started working with other vendors to create t-shirts Gumby-like plastic collectible characters, games. There was annoyed video game. Then he makes
2: all these cameo appearances. You know, he was in Michael Jackson's Moonwalker video. Michael Jackson! Michael Jackson! (laughs) Essentially, it just kind of caught fire a little bit.
3: Until ultimately a tragic event there was a um, a young man named kenneth lamar noid who uh, from all accounts had some mental health issues he must have heard we're avoiding the noid far too many times and he began to internalize that
0: here's some news the noid won't like only our pizza is guaranteed to
3: avoid the noise.
1: So avoid the noise. Avoid the noise.
0: Avoid the noise. Sorry, noise. <laughs> the noise just can't be the best.
3: And came to believe that we were somehow targeting him individually for ridicule. And he needed a way to get back at us. And so he went into one of our stores.
4: It was Domino's Beats on Buford Highway in Shambly, Georgia. One of
3: the employees in the store was Sean Burnsett. I think I was 21. It was in 1989.
4: My job was to open the store, and Kenneth Lamar Noyd came to the door. He was tall. I remember he's probably 6'1". I opened the door and um, went behind the counter to take his order, and he immediately pulled out a gun. Came around the counter and he says, "Um, I want $100,000. He was explaining to me that he felt that Domino's Pizza owed him money because of the Avoid the noid commercials. He told me I needed to get Tom Monahan on the phone. And Tom Monahan, I believe, was the owner of Domino's Pizza. I picked up the phone and called the only number I, I knew I could get through to, and it was the Domino's Pizza Safety Hotline. I told the lady, I said, there's a guy here, says that he uh, wants $100,000. So the lady started laughing. I'm pretty sure she thought it was a joke. About a second or two later, Kenneth uh, pulled the trigger on his gun and fired a couple of shots into the ceiling. And the lady's demeanor immediately changed. Um, He said it where the lady on the phone could hear, if any cops show up, I'm going to kill him. Then he hung up the phone.
3: 22-year-old Kenneth Noyd
4: kidnapped two Domino's workers with a 357 handgun. Immediately, all the phones started ringing off the hook. We answered one of the phones, and it was the hostage negotiator trying to negotiate with Kenneth. He wanted $100,000 and a private
3: plane to take us to Mexico. And we did gather the owner of the company at the time. And the heads of operations got together to say, what can we do? The owner of the company had a private plane at the time and was willing to make it available if that would help get the team members out
4: of the store. And As the hostage negotiator was talking, I could tell from my end if it started to upset Kenneth. You know, he would just get angry. And so I'd immediately kind of start trying to calm him down by maybe sort of taking his side, if that makes sense. One of the things that he had me do is make him a pizza He ordered an extravaganza, I do remember that, but he wouldn't allow me to cut it. I think that he feared that I was going to maybe come at him with a pizza cutter, I'm not certain. You know,
3: it was one of those times in the corporate office that you literally saw people biting their nails. You'd get a phone update and then they'd hang up and you'd have to wait for the phone to ring for another update. Noid, who police say was acting irrationally, at one point wanted a book called The Widow's Son. Police brought the book but wouldn't give it to him unless a hostage was released. Kenneth was
4: going to finally let a police officer in to speak to him. I sort of had some of his trust because, you know, I was trying to be sympathetic to his situation. I made him pizza. For whatever reason, he chose me to go to the front door. He was probably eight feet from me. He could have shot me for sure. I just finally just grabbed the door, opened it up, ran out.
3: During a six-hour standoff with police, hustling Domino's employees literally ran out on the gunman when his back was turned. The gunman gave up just before 5 o'clock, surrendering himself in a snub nose 38. I remember people going from nail-biting to hugging. Police say will be charged with two counts kidnapping, two counts aggravated assault and theft by extortion. Police. I
4: don't hold on to anger or any animosity towards him. I did for a very short while, but... I did know that he had mental issues, and to me, that was a way to kind of justify at least in part what he did. But I just don't remember ever harboring a whole lot of
3: anger towards him. I really don't. Then the questions came from national media about whether we were gonna uh, get rid of the ad campaign. and we didn't.. You know we did talk about it um, but this was such a unique just extraordinary uh, experience we didn't think it was going to happen again uh, which clearly it didn't one of the things that I think about is is this something that a reasonable person would blame on the brand would blame on the company did we do something that's our fault and In asking that question six or seven ways about the NOID, we couldn't say yes to any of them.
2: There's no way we'd have ever, ever in a million years imagined something like that, nor in a million years could we ever have prevented something like that. You know what I mean? That's how you rest your head on the pillow and and just feel sorry for the situation.
3: And I believe it was in 1995, uh, Kenneth Lamar NOID took his own life. In 1995, Noid, the man, committed suicide. Subsequently, Domino's terminated the Noid. And that's when Domino's stopped using the Noid character. You know, there's a lot of information out there. There's, If you look these things up, you'll see that this, this tragedy of this young man is credited with the end of the Domino's Pizza Noid campaign. And the two things happened, but the two were not related.
2: The Noid campaign ended in... I believe in late 91 or early 1992, but Ken took his life four years later or something like that. So it certainly wasn't a part of the reason that the campaign uh, ended up going away.
3: You know, the Noid was a phenomenal ad campaign, but five years later, people know what pizza delivery is. If the idea was to educate, quote-unquote, educate consumers about pizza delivery and what could go wrong and what should go right... Then the Noid accomplished its purpose. We tried our best to set the record straight, but then it's one of those things where you hear the story, it's sensational, it's bizarre, and myth becomes fact.
2: And uh, just the resurrection of this discussion has moved me a lot, actually, in the last few weeks. I lost my son to mental illness uh, two years ago. At about the same age that Kenneth probably passed away, I, I, uh, it's a it's a pain that I live with every day that'll never go away. So this situation is very difficult for me to talk about, but I feel very passionate about it. It's just something you cannot predict, something you would never even possibly think about, something that you can't explain, something that doctors can't fix, something that Kenneth's parents couldn't do anything about, something that Kenneth couldn't do anything about. And it's so you know, do, do I have do I have guilt over naming the character of the Noid, knowing what I know now? No. I don't have guilt over it at all. I couldn't have prevented anything, you know. But I just feel so much compassion for uh, any uh, of his family members. I don't know them. I'd like to give his mom a hug. I'd like to give his dad a hug. Uh, I don't want, I don't think it's fair for anybody to think that, that their son's death is brings a little bit of a smile to someone's face just because it's so odd. Uh, they don't deserve that. It's not right. It's inappropriate. And, you know, at this point in time in my life, I, I take this stuff very, very seriously. ¶¶
3: We have no plans to bring the, the Noid back. Brands and audiences and generations change and evolve. You know, the California Raisins are gone, the Noid is gone. I'm sure there is a, an advertising mascot cemetery somewhere where there are, there are more mascots there than there are on TV. I like the
4: Noid campaign. I, I thought it was funny. We used to have the little Noid dolls and everything else. It was a good campaign. I think they ought to bring it back. Studio 360's
1: Sam Kim produced that story. You can see more about the Noid, including some early sketches of the character, at our site, pri.org slash studio360.
0: Coming up... In New York, there is an inverse relationship between a woman's dress size and the size of her apartment. Before Nell Scovell
1: wrote for The Simpsons, Late Night with David Letterman, and Murphy Brown, she wrote aphorisms like this for My Old Magazine.
0: A size 2 gets a 14-room apartment. A size 14 gets a 2-room apartment.
1: I talk with Nell Scovell about how she went from spy magazine reporter to big time Hollywood TV writer and the creepy men she encountered in writers' rooms along the way. That's next on Studio 360. Studio
5: 360. What do you mean I'm a witch? You're a witch. Now, you're not alone. I'm a witch. Hilda's a witch. Your father's a witch. And I suppose my mom's a witch, too. I always thought so.
1: That is from the premiere episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, a primetime hit show created in the 1990s by Nell Scovell. Even if you've never heard of Nell, you have almost certainly seen her work. She has written for everything from The Simpsons to Late Night with David Letterman to Newhart to Murphy Brown to Monk she also co-wrote Cheryl Sandberg's 2013 best-selling book, Lean In. Now, Nell has just published her own book, her first, a memoir called Just the Funny Parts, which is a candid and funny portrayal of her 30-year career in a very male-dominated part of show business. But Before she broke into show business, into TV, Nell got her start as a professional funny person in 1986 at a magazine, which I had just co-founded.
0: We met at Spy Magazine, where I was hired as the first reporter.
1: And you were like 25, I'm thinking? That's right. I think you say in the book that you got hired because you came in with a bunch of story ideas. Is that right?
0: I did, including Too Rich and Too Thin. Yeah, Which
1: uh, one of your most famous stories?
0: It was, and one which, if you recall, you said could not be reported because women wouldn't talk about their weights. And I was like, "No, these women will."
1: Yeah, and no, and you were clearly right. I I, I still love it. I still love the way it looks, designed by the way by this person who designed uh, your cover, Alexander Isley Isley. of your book. Can you read the first line of this piece, which I've brought with me?
0: (laughs) Sure. In New York, there is an inverse relationship between a woman's dress size and the size of her apartment. A size 2 gets a 14-room apartment. A size 14 gets a 2-room apartment.
1: Which is a brilliant aphorism. I mean, you know, uh, Oscar Wilde, Dorothy Parker. Uh, It's great. Uh, Was that a joke you had and you were just waiting for the right moment to stick it somewhere?
0: Well, the Duchess of Windsor famously had a pillow on her sofa that said, you can never be too rich or too thin. Um, And among high society, it it was considered ultra chic to be the smallest size possible. I remember Caroline Roan would treat herself to one Oreo cookie a night. And she
1: was a rich Manhattan lady of that era.
0: Yeah. And I just thought um, people overdid it.
1: And you, this was a reported story. It wasn't just saying, hey, look at all these skinny rich women. You You went out and talked to people about thinness and wealth.
0: I did. And it was at a time where you could pick up the phone and call someone at their home and they would pick up. It was before publicists ruined reporting. Right. I also sounded really young, and to this day, I'm convinced. You were really young. I I was, but also I got Ed Schlossberg on the phone, who was Caroline Kennedy's husband and would famously not speak to any reporters, and I'm convinced it's because he thought I was a high school student. Yeah. My biggest regret, though, was um, when I was reporting a story on gold diggers. I don't I think, actually, I think it was your story idea, and I had put in a call to Pamela Harriman. Remember, Pamela Churchill, uh, Avril Harriman. Right. And um, I went out to get a cup of coffee, and I came back, and they, Lisa Lampanelli, who was our... The
1: future famous comedian who was a fact-checker at Spy Magazine.
0: Yeah, I think handed me a pink while you were out slip that she had tried to call me, and I called back, and she was on a plane back to Paris. So I missed that phone wow. call.
1: So you left Spy to start writing for television.
0: No, no. I went to Vanity Fair first. Oh, right. There was Remember, and Graydon 7. told me I was making the biggest mistake of my life.
1: Right. And this is some years before he became editor of Vanity yeah, Fair. Yeah, just a couple. Well, we had
0: a good laugh about that in his office. Um, <laughs> but then you went to television. I did. How did that happen? So I bump into Joanne Gruber.
1: Who was our manager or our co- chief copy editor and then our managing editor at Spy.
0: Right. Uh-huh. and And she kind of pauses and then says to me, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. Um, and it truly was the first time really? I'd ever considered it.
1: So once uh, our colleague said, you know, you should go write for television, you said, well, by golly, I will, and and what?
0: I-, I knew one person in the business. And really, if you know one person, you can find a way in, which is why Twitter's so great, like if you can just find that person. And I said, what do you do? And he said, well, you write a spec script, and he introduced me to an agent who liked my spy pieces and said, I'll represent you based on those. And uh, I sat down and wrote a spec script.
1: And, and then that got your job?
0: You know, trying something new really should be the easiest thing in the world because if you try it and it works out great, uh, that's wonderful. And if you try it and you fail, you just go, well, I've never done that before. Right. Uh, so... What was weird was I write this spec script, my agent sends it into its Gary Shandling show, and they buy it. Huh. So it's like getting a home run at your first at-bat as a rookie. So
1: this is the prototype of modern cool TV.
0: It was, and very absurdist. The most popular show at the time was The Cosby Show, and if I'd been smart, I would have written a spec script for them. Yeah,
1: and you would have had a a better first chapter for this particular (laughs) book, probably. (laughs) Um, You uh, wrote for The Simpsons, right?
0: I did. I wrote the episode where Homer eats blowfish and thinks he's going to die.
1: Right. This is 1991, which is really early in the in the existence of the. It's Simpsons. second
0: season, uh, and I called after watching the very first episode and said, "I want to work on this show." In, 80, in
1: really 89. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I don't think they were getting a lot of calls at that time because it was just this weird ass cartoon on
1: this weird little network that wasn't really a network, Fox.
0: Oh, it was so mean. I loved it.
1: Yeah. And this came from what, going to sushi restaurants or eating blowfish or what?
0: I've never tried blowfish. It came from, I think, wanting to know more about the character because it was so early in the show. And the idea is, well, if someone's about to die, you really do find out what's important to them.
1: Let's play a clip uh, from, from the episode, your episode, One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish.
4: Now, a little death anxiety is normal. Uh, you can expect to go through five stages. The first is denial. No
3: way, because I'm
4: not dying. Second is anger. Why, you little... After that comes fear. What's after fear? What's after fear? Bargaining. Doc, you got to get me out of this. I'll make it worth your while. And finally, acceptance. Well, we all got to go sometime. Mr. Simpson, your progress astounds me.
1: So smart to turn the Kubler-Ross thing <laughs> into, into like a long comedy bit.
0: The Simpsons room was so deep in talent, and I think that run came right out of the room with George Myers and Al Jean and Mike Reese pitching in. Yeah, TV writing is best, I think, is when it's writing as a team sport, and you really use the the best of what everyone has to offer. So I did come in with the idea of the blowfish, and then we batted around some big ideas of where it could lead. You know, Homer makes his vow at the end to live life to its fullest. I'm
5: alive, and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> From this day forward,
0: I vow to live life to its fullest. And then he's sitting on the couch watching bowling and eating pork rinds.
1: Which is, which is um, I am told, among uh, Simpsons fans, considered one of the great endings of, a, of all 600-odd Simpsons episodes.
0: The best sitcoms, I think, are when they enlighten our own lives. Uh,
1: and and lots of those people that you worked with are still writing Simpsons episodes. W- Why did you leave?
0: Well, I was a freelancer, and
1: um, and they didn't want girls. What they didn't. Yeah.
0: Sam Simon was going through a bad divorce at the time and told someone that he uh, would prefer not to have a woman in the room. They didn't have another woman write an episode um, for five more seasons. Really. Yeah.
1: Wow. You were, for those, in those early years, usually the only woman, it sounds like, from, from reading this book.
0: I was in Newhart and Coach and Letterman, Simpsons. Well, once, once you
1: were a successful TV writer in was it easier, though, to be that Rosemarie character from Dick Van Dyke? I mean,
0: <laughs> well, think, think about it. They only had three writers, so they had 33% women. That <laughs> yeah. was far better yeah. than any room. It was incredible when I got to Murphy Brown. And there were four women and I think six men in that room. And not having the additional burden of having to represent Uh all women uh, was wonderful.
1: So jumping ahead to your non-television second act or third act or whatever it is, uh, 2011, uh, you get a new writing partner in Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the chief operating officer of that company, Facebook. Uh, How did that collaboration begin?
0: She was about to give a speech at Annapolis. And you mean the Naval Academy? The Naval Academy. It's called the Forrestal Lecture. And she asked me to take a look at what she had written. And it was the first time she actually used the phrase lean in.
1: And that was her phrase or your phrase?
0: Her phrase. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah.
1: Have you talked to her recently about, you know, why Facebook uh, hates America? <laughs> oh, no.
0: No? Uh, no, we don't get into that. Uh,
1: well, that'll be, that'll be the, the second sequel, I guess, right? Like, lean in. <laughs> what was the second one called?
0: Oh, option B. Option B. Although I just wanted—my joke is if I had written Lean In alone, it would have been called Barge In, yeah. <laughs> and nobody would have read it. And the,
1: next, and the third one will be Get Out or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
0: uh, <laughs> Quick, um, Get Out. Uh,
1: a couple of years after that, you were writing some jokes for the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington. and Actually,
0: it's, into- so it's through Facebook that I meet John Favreau, who is the head speechwriter for Barack Obama— And um, he invites me to contribute jokes to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And then I I did that for five years. Well, we
1: have one of them from 2011 when the president was Barack Obama and he did his funny routine, including this joke. I've even
3: let down my key core constituency, movie stars. Just the other day, Matt Damon. I, I love Matt Damon. Love the guy. Matt Damon said he was disappointed in my performance. Well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau, so (laughs) right back at you, buddy.
0: And that one was um, a nail-biter because I'd written it, and John really liked it, and it was in the script. And then the morning of the speech, John wrote me and said... um, the president has cold feet. He's worried he might offend Matt. And I wrote back, I saw the Adjustment Bureau. Truth is a defense.
1: Uh, Your work as an Obama comedy minion is just one chapter of Just the Funny Parts. So what is the overall response you want from readers uh, after they've read the whole book?
0: I would hope laugh. I, I think um you know, I called it just the funny parts instead of just the angry and bitter parts. Right. I hope it's like equal parts about comedy, about writing, about feminism. And I think it's pretty eye opening for men. I do really want men to read The book, and I always say, Come for the Simpsons, stay for the feminism.
1: Uh, Nell Scovel, thank you very much. This was just uh, a pleasure, as is your book.
0: Oh, well, thank you for teaching me how to write, Kurt.
1: Nell Scovel's book, Just the Funny Parts, is out now.
5: The winter of 2002 to 2003, I decided that I was going to move to Norway. Forever. <laughs> so I said goodbye to everyone and I went and rented a cabin in the Arctic, way far north. This is the
1: musician Phil Elvram, who performs under the name Mount Erie.
5: But during that time I received mail. I hollowed out a stump and wrote my name on it and got the passing mail truck to deliver me. <laughs> it was super romantic, but it's true. And so I got this package from this person who liked my music. She sent me all of her comics that she had made and wrote me this really nice letter.
1: The letter writer turned out to be a woman from Quebec named jean Castré. Like Phil, she was in her early 20s. But she was already a critically acclaimed cartoonist and a fellow musician.
5: And I had heard about her. People were like, Phil, you've got to meet this person, this French-Canadian. She's amazing. I think you're destined to know her. So we started our correspondence then. We met in person the next summer, and it was kind of instant. They were married within a year.
1: And for the next dozen years, they built a life together in a small town on a remote island in Washington State where Phil had grown up. In 2015, they had a daughter. And a few months after that, Geneviève was diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer.
5: She was sick for 13 months, or, you know, diagnosed and going through treatment, cancer treatment, orthodox chemo, and every alternative thing. She
1: died in the summer of 2016. She was 35. It was naturally a loss that Elvrim couldn't stop thinking about
5: or writing songs about. I got on them boat. Last
1: year, he released an album of songs about Geneviève and her death and his responses to it called, A Crow Looked at Me. It is as sad as you'd imagine, but it is also sublime. The music magazine Pitchfork called it one of the best albums of 2017, saying that it makes us feel less alone and it reminds us to go easy on ourselves. And Phil Elvrum has now followed that up with a kind of sequel called Now Only. So these two albums, this brand new one and the one you put out a year ago, are, are extremely beautiful. Thank you. I want listeners to get a sense of what we're talking about. So uh, if you could play a song, that'd be great. Oh, okay. And
5: this one first is going to be what? Earth. Earth. Mm. I don't want to live with this feeling any longer than I have to But also I don't want you to be gone So I talk about you all the time Including the last day that you were alive And I hang your pictures up around the house For me to surprise myself with and cry Everybody That used to know us Seems concerned But if they knew That when you enter my mind I'm full of the love That illuminated our house For all those years And made this dancing child Who tears through the days With a brilliance You would have deepened And sang along with But you're sleeping Out in the yard now What am I saying? No one is sleeping You don't even have a dead body anymore It was taken away I went and wrote a check And got a cardboard box full of your ashes And A little plastic bag with your necklace And I drove back home, truly alone I guess I didn't bury it deeply enough When I poured out your ashes beneath the three witch hazels That you planted in the yard a few years ago In a triangle for us but me and the kid were rolling in the grass the other day And I saw actual chunks of your bones Bleached and weathered Unerasable You're still out there in the spring upheaving Coming out of the ground into air Is that exact fragment your finger that once caressed me not that long ago? I still can feel it, and is that other shard a piece of your skull that once contained the wild brain that used to overflow with loving? Undiscovered and gone, and now just shrapnel. The place I poured your ashes out was on a chair on top of a mountain pointed at the sunset. I went back there last week after a year has passed and noticed that the chunks of your bones that haven't been blown away are indistinguishable from the other pieces of animal bones brought there by coyotes, vultures, and gods my will I felt a little bit of solace creeping in while I laid there on the moss compost and memory there's nothing else roots At night I sit and picture myself curled up beneath ten feet of water at the bottom of the lake Imagine trout bumping against me in the low diminished light holding my breath trying to be a boulder eroding to join background of churned muck coalescing in the dark to get ground back down to matter only eternal and dumb becoming not a thing abdicating
1: That's Phil Elvram singing Earth from his new album, Now Only. I, I, I am a, I am not an easy crier, but that, and that's the second time I've heard that song. And before, I hadn't met you, and it was just on a computer. Uh, but it choked me up then, and, and, and it was all I could do to keep it contained this time. It's a beautiful, beautiful... Thank you. Unlike any song I've ever heard song.
5: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's about cremation. <laughs> Yes. Not um, many songs about that, I guess.
1: The first album, After Your Wife's Death, A Crow Looked at Me, you started by saying, death is real and it's not to memorialize as art or transform into something artful, I
5: guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Here you are, your second album, about <laughs> it. Um I'm yeah, doing just that. How, how do you reconcile that?
5: Well, that was sort of the inherent contradiction, even with that first song, where I, I, mean, I, I said that in a song. Death is real, someone's there and not for singing about, it's not for making into art. When real death enters the house, all poetry is dumb. I think I'm comfortable in contradiction, or I, maybe I find it interesting to say something that cancels itself out right. and to live within that disparity. Which is.
1: Inherent in lots of
5: art. Yeah. <laughs> you contain multitudes and contradictions. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yes. Is that Walt Whitman? It is. Yeah. Um, y- in these songs, you, you address uh, Genevieve directly. Yeah. Uh, pretty much all the time. Do you think of that as a literary device, or are you continuing a conversation with her?
5: You know, it just happened that way. I didn't think about it in advance. I'd noticed that I was still speaking to her. I wrote the songs in the room where she died. Not for morbid reasons but just because that was the, that's a the spare room in our house that's where we set up the hospital bed and uh, when hospice came and stuff so i guess i felt like she was the one who understood what i was navigating through she was there too even though she didn't exist anymore right also that's a contradiction that i found interesting and that's kind of where i live now it's like i don't believe in Anything. you mean, ghosts and spirits and souls. Yeah, afterlife and. But then, yet I'm singing all these songs to her, or like some concept of her, and what? Who am I singing to? Yeah.
1: Be careful! If you say that too much, proselytizers are going to come and proselytize you. (laughs) Oh,
5: don't worry. I'll bet
1: (laughs) they found me. I'll bet they have. And and these songs on this new album and the one last year are a new mode for you. That's I mean, true. There yeah. was a lot more poetic language yeah, yeah. and metaphor before, and there's lots more concrete, straightforward description mm-hmm. of death, for instance. Yeah.
5: I feel like everything I made before, I can't relate to it at all. It's just I'm never going to play those songs again as really? a different person. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, a, a huge a guillotine came down and severed that part of my life permanently. Poetry seemed useless in the context of actual annihilation. So I felt like, well, if I'm going to write anything or say anything, all I am allowed to talk about is what I know for sure to be true, which is breakfast and you know reality. That's all I know. That's all I know anymore. Something that's not poetry. Something that is just my real life. Are, are you one of
1: those who will not say pass on or passed away, and you yeah, prefer I die? Say, die.
5: Or sometimes killed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, honestly, I, I'm with you. what's the point of trying to soften the blow? No, It doesn't benefit anyone. But people get cancer and die. People get hit by trucks and die. People just living their lives get erased for no reason with the rest of us watching from the side.
1: I understand you have a new songwriting ritual about
5: literally how you write songs. That's Can you ta- true. Talk yeah. about that. For these, I wrote them all on paper with a pencil on these special pieces of paper. Special in what way? Uh, they were l- long. Scroll type pieces of paper that Genevieve had letter pressed on many years ago as a Christmas present for people in my family. She made some like nice stationery, but they had these leftover scraps from that time that were these long scrolls, and they just fit the shape of these songs I was trying to write. Lots of words, l- vertical, and I've got them in my guitar case right there. Really? Yeah. Can I see one? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, yes. It's it, they're they're like uh 2 feet long or more and and like some artifact from the 1930s <laughs> or something.
5: Yeah, there's lots of words in these songs. I'll say,
1: this wow. This one's really long. Uh, and th- that one's yes, that one is four sheets.
5: That one's 4 feet long. That's Yeah, so some incredible. of them I had to tape them together and
1: And is this this is new
5: for you? You didn't used to do this? No. And I keep doing it, maybe out of a little bit of superstition. Because these are special pieces of paper, and actually, I have just a few pieces left, wow. so maybe that's how many songs I have left.
1: Well, that's interesting. That will be a self-ending thing for mm-hmm. this phase, maybe?
5: Yeah, or maybe I can let her press some more.
1: <laughs> and it's, it is it is so interesting to me. You are a non-believer. You're, mm-hmm. you're creating all these various rituals, as people have for mm-hmm.
5: eons, around, around a death. hmm Things take on... Sign- a, the, a crow looked at me is the title of the thing. So that means there is significance in the world. This bird that is just a bird, but it looked at me. And what does that mean? And so, yeah, this uncomfortable acknowledgement of that feeling of attaching significance to insignificant right. things.
1: Genevieve wrote and and drew uh, a final children's book, which is lovely, uh, and, and being published
5: later this year. Yeah, she got this idea that she wanted to make a book for our daughter and... It's called A Bubble. A Bubble, and it's about a mom who lives in a bubble where she can't break through the bubble to interact with her child. And it's just all portraits of them, of our daughter and, and Genevieve. And She was working on it in her literal last days. She was on oxygen at her desk she was devoting everything to it because she was going for the big win of surviving. So her idea was like, if I throw everything into surviving, then I'll get to be alive. And even as she knew that it wasn't happening at the very end, I think she was still focused on finishing this book.
1: She didn't quite finish it, right?
5: No, and so she didn't draw the bubbles around the characters, for example. So a friend of ours, Anders Nilsson, who's also a graphic novelist went through and brought it to the point of publishability.
1: Would you be comfortable reading a little bit of it to the listeners?
5: Oh sure. Mama lives in a bubble. It has been a while now. I no longer remember the time when she didn't live in the bubble. I was too little. Hello, Kokut. Hi, Mama. She invites me to eat in her bubble every morning. She doesn't mind if I make crumbs with my toast. When I'm sad, maman comforts me in the bubble. I like it. It'll be okay, mon chouette. These French nicknames. Jean Viable is French-Canadian. That's right, yeah. Sometimes I take a nap in the bubble. This is a special time for maman and me. Maman often works in her bubble. She's on her phone. When I come back from an adventure in the woods with papa, I come and tell her everything. Mon petit champignon... Mamma can't join us because of the bubble. She would really like to come play with us. Champion. Yeah, that was she had a name. Champignon, mushroom, and also champion. champion. So I draw with her. It brings her great joy. And one day, the bubble bursts so suddenly, just like magic. Mamma ends up on the ground, all disoriented. She kisses me a thousand times without even catching her breath. She invites me for an ice cream cone. I say yes. So, yeah, it's it's aspirational. She was trying to draw her survival. But depicting? The bubble just bursting by magic right, all of a sudden. Right.
1: Do you think, uh, will you allow your daughter to re- read this?
5: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, all of this stuff. I My stance is just to always, when I'm talking about death and stuff to our daughter, t- to also say, we loved her. She loved us. We love thinking about her. It's all just love. And that's still present, and to not make it scary, it can be sad and full of love at the same time.
1: Before you go, will you will you play one more song? Yeah. And this is which? Crow part two. A
5: crow that's being dreamed by a child who's being carried through the forest, sleeping, wondering in her twilight half-awareness where her mother went. I know that you died, but in this child's crow dream you survive. Beneath layers of magical, symbolic wild animals Inhabiting the edges of our fogged over Consciousnesses grasping for something to hold Something old Like a name cut into a stone Or a bird that will make eye contact
1: That's Phil Elvrum singing Crow Part 2 from the new Mount Erie album Now Only. jean Geneviève Castres illustrated book, A Bubble, will be published in June. And that's it for this week's show. To make sure you never miss an episode of this show, you can and should subscribe to the Studio 360 podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Sam Kim, Evan Chubb,
0: Zoe Saunders, Lauren Hansen,
1: Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is
0: Morgan Flannery.
1: I am Kurt Anderson, and I thank you very much for listening.
3: RI public radio international
1: next time on studio 360
5: amazing.
1: how a song written by a slave trader came to be an anthem of freedom
2: amazing grace would have spoke to their desire for an experience of freedom and no longer subjected to the type of cruel treatment they experienced during slavery
1: amazing grace an American icon next time on studio 360 I